As I'm sure you know, our Lord Jesus had a way of making profound statements in a manner that was brief but memorable. When a group of officers was sent to arrest Jesus but returned without him, they were asked by the chief priests and Pharisees why they had not arrested Jesus. John 7.46 tells us, the officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. Boy, is that true. No one ever spoke like Jesus. One of his most profound statements is found in Matthew 16.26, where he said, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Think about the truthfulness and reality of that statement. What does it matter if you gain the whole world, but you lose your life and you lose your soul for eternity? To say that, w- that it would all be worthless and meaningless would be an extreme understatement. When the rich man in Luke 16 ended up in the fiery torment of Hades, he begged that someone be sent to his five brothers to warn them about ending up in the same place. That's all that mattered to him at that point. Please go warn my brothers so they don't end up here. The reality of judgment and eternal destiny ought to be a sobering reality. It ought to put everything else in proper perspective. When it's all said and done, the only thing that really matters is the judgment of God and deliverance from that judgment. God's future judgment is certain and sure. That is the focus of our text this morning in 2 Peter chapter 2, so please turn with me to that text if you're not already there, 2 Peter chapter 2, and please follow along as I read verses 4 through 11, although we won't make it all the way through all these verses in this message, but I want us to read the full sentence, the full scope of Peter's argument that we have to break down into several messages. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And if God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. 
As you can see from reading through this passage, Peter's focus is on the subject of God's future judgment and its certainty. And Peter has in mind a specific group of people when he writes these words. It is true that someday the Lord is going to judge all people who have rejected him and his ways, but Peter's primary concern in this chapter is a particular group of people. His focus is on false teachers who bring in destructive heresies and who live shameful lives and who exploit people for financial gain. That's what Peter said as he introduced this second chapter, beginning in verse 1. He said, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Those are the people that Peter has in mind primarily when he writes verses 4 through 11 about God's future judgment. His, fo- his focus is on false teachers who bring in destructive heresies and who live shameful lives and who exploit people for financial gain. Peter says here that it is absolutely, positively certain that God is going to judge these false teachers someday. To reinforce that point, or to support that point, Peter goes on to give three examples of God's judgment in the past as proof that God will certainly judge in the future. We looked at one of those examples last Lord's Day. The first example of judgment that Peter mentions is the angels who sinned. He says in verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. It would be easy upon reading this verse to assume that Peter is speaking of all the angels that rebelled with Satan, but the description that Peter gives us here lets us know that he isn't referring to all the angels who rebelled with Satan in the original rebellion. The reason why we know that is because it is a fact that all the angels that sinned with Satan originally have not been delivered into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Fallen angels or demons are free to roam around, as Scripture repeatedly tells us. So Peter has in mind a specific group of fallen angels that were judged by God. What group does he have in mind? We answered that question in the last message by comparing Peter's words here with what Jude has to say about a certain group of angels. It becomes clear that Peter has in mind the angels in Genesis 6 that sinned in a very grievous way. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah did not keep their own domain and left their own abode by giving themselves over to homosexuality, The angels in Genesis 6 did not keep their own domain, and they left their own abode by cohabiting with women. As a result, God judged them by delivering them into chains of darkness to be reserved for their ultimate final judgment in the lake of fire. That is Peter's first example of judgment in the past. His second one is in verse 5. 
He says, and here's a second example, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Peter's second example of judgment that he sets forth here as proof that God will judge in the future, his second example of judgment is the worldwide flood of Noah's day. The worldwide flood that killed millions of people. And yes, I did state that exactly as I intended. The flood that God sent in Noah's day was a worldwide flood and it killed millions of people. It's very easy for us to downplay the catastrophic magnitude of that judgment because many of us here have heard about that story since our days in Sunday school. As a result, many adult Christians do not take God's description of that event seriously. Instead, when we see something about Noah and the ark, we see a picture of a little boat with a giraffe sticking his head out of the window. That kind of perspective does severe injustice to what a horrific event it actually was. To really grasp what happened, you need to think about a man and his sons working for 120 years on a huge barge that could withstand a massive amount of water and upheaval and turmoil. All the time he worked on that project, on that gargantuan project, Noah was warning people about a terrifying judgment that was to come. And indeed, it was terrifying. Think about millions and millions of people screaming in the midst of an earth-shattering storm, trying to grab hold of anything that could give them stability to save them. Think about people trying to swim up to and find a way inside the only thing that could save them, which was a humongous wooden barge that had been closed up once and for all by God himself. The horror in people's minds is unimaginable. The terror in their hearts is indescribable. Yet many of them had 120 years to repent while they watched or heard about Noah methodically preparing the ark according to its exact specifications. Extensive analysis has been done to understand the size and scope of that kind of building project. Consider the following. The dimensions given by God in the book of Genesis provided extraordinary stability in the tumultuous floodwaters. The ark was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. A gigantic box of that size would be very stable in water, impossible to capsize. The volume of space in the ark was 1.4 million cubic feet, equal to the capacity of 522 standard railroad boxcars, which could carry 125,000 sheep. It had three stories, each 15 feet high. Each deck was equipped with various rooms. 
Now think about this. There are less than 18,000 species living on earth today. Less than 18,000. You could double this number to allow for now extinct creatures. With two of each, a total of 72,000 creatures is reasonable. Since the average size of land animals is less than a sheep, perhaps less than 60% of the space was used. The very large animals were surely represented by young. There was ample room also for one million species of insects as well as food for a year for everyone. Beloved, the story of Noah and the ark is not a children's fairy tale. It is a historical account of devastating, catastrophic judgment. God gave the world 120 years to repent before he brought the worldwide flood. That's how long it took Noah to build the ark. This verse, verse 5, calls Noah a preacher of righteousness, which is another indication that throughout those 120 years, Noah preached righteousness and called people to repentance and called people to righteousness. That is a long time to give the people of this world to repent. 120 years warning. Yet only eight people survived that devastating judgment. Eight people. Analysis has been done on the population growth from the time of Adam until the time of Noah, and the studies show that the population on planet Earth may have been about the same as it is today. Even if it was only half the number, let's say it was half the population, that would still be millions and millions and millions of people. I emphasize this point because it's important to understand that the judgment of the flood was immense. And it resulted in the death of millions and millions of people. That event was no trivial matter. It was no insignificant event in which a few people lost their lives. The only thing that was few about it was the few who survived. Only eight people survived. Noah and his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. That's it. Everybody else on planet Earth lost their lives in a terrifying experience of judgment. That's Peter's second example of judgment to prove that God does judge sinners and God will judge sinners in the future. But he has a third example. Verse 6. He says, and, here's his third example, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Peter's third example of judgment is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Once again, it is a powerful example because the judgment on those two cities was devastating. It was so severe. Consider this. It was so severe that we don't even know the location of where those cities existed. Those two cities were in existence in Abraham's day. 
But they were obliterated to the point that we can't even find remnants of their existence. Contrast that with other cities of of that day. Beersheba existed in Abraham's day, and we know exactly where it was located. You can go there today. I've been there nine times. We know exactly where Beersheba was located. Arad existed in Abraham's day. We know exactly where it was located. You can go there today. I've been there. Hebron existed in Abraham's day. And we know exactly where it was located. You can go there today. Gaza existed in Abraham's day. And we know exactly where it was located. You can go there today. But you can't find Sodom and Gomorrah. Historical, geographical work has been done to try to determine. And every now and then someone says, well, we think we found where Sodom existed and maybe someday it will be discovered. But to this point, You can't find Sodom and Gomorrah. As Peter says here, they were turned into ashes. The judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah incinerated everyone and everything in the area. The message should be clear that God does judge wickedness and God will judge wickedness. He doesn't let it slide. He doesn't let it pass. He doesn't just turn a blind eye. He is amazingly patient and long-suffering. But his judgment is certain. That's Peter's point in these three examples. However, Peter has another point that he wants to make, and that is in verse 7. He says, "And, And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Here's the next point that Peter wants to make. God not only judges the wicked, He only judges the wicked. What I mean is, when God judges the wicked, He doesn't judge and condemn His own righteous people in the mix. In the case of the worldwide flood, God spared Noah and his family. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, God spared Lot. This is God's pattern. He judges the wicked and He delivers the righteous. This brings up a very interesting point. Was Lot righteous? This verse says he was. But when you look at the information given to us in the book of Genesis, he doesn't look very righteous. He offered to have his daughters violated by the men of Sodom. And he allowed himself to get drunk by his daughters who used him to impregnate them. Those activities are not righteous. So what is Peter saying here? It is clear that Peter is referring to Lot's standing before God by faith, not Lot's actions. He was positionally righteous because righteousness was imputed to him by grace through faith. That's the same way we receive a righteous standing before God. We are not made righteous before God by our works, by our deeds. We are made righteous before God by grace through faith. Lot was a genuine child of God whose conduct didn't always measure up to his positional standing as a child of God. Welcome to the club, right? Isn't the same thing true of us? Those of us who know Christ are righteous by grace through faith, 
But sadly, our actions don't always reflect our position as children of God. That was Lot. He was a child of God who made very poor choices, and it resulted in some devastating consequences. Yet, yet the Lord graciously delivered him from the incinerating judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. He shouldn't have been there hanging around the setting he was in. But one positive thing was that it did bother him and it troubled him. This verse tells us that he was oppressed or distressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked people who were around him. Sadly, that's a lot more that can be said about some Christians today. What I mean is, there are believers today that are not bothered or distressed by the filthy conduct of people in our society. When they hear about homosexual behavior, they just accept it as normal. I mean, that's just what goes on today. When they hear about immorality or couples living together, they just accept it as normal. I just heard this week about a Christian couple that is dating, and one set of their parents actually encouraged them to live together for a while before getting married. That's sickening. At least Lot was distressed. At least Lot was troubled. He he shouldn't have been in the setting he was in. He shouldn't have been in the environment he was in. But at least he was bothered by the sins of his society. Peter emphasizes this point in the next verse. He says in verse 8, it's sort of a parenthetical statement. He says, For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Once again, Peter refers to Lot as righteous. That righteous man. As I said earlier, Peter's focus is not so much on Lot's character or Lot's behavior. It is on his positional standing before God by faith. Now, I'm not implying that there were no aspects of Lot's life that were righteous because there were some positive things. For example, he sought to protect God's angels. Now, whether or not he knew they were angels, we don't know. Maybe he just thought they were men, visitors coming under his roof. He sought to protect them when the men of the city wanted to sodomize them. Secondly, he obeyed the Lord by not looking back at Sodom when it was destroyed. God told him, don't look back. He didn't. You remember his wife did? Was turned into a pillar of salt. And as this verse emphasizes, he hated the sins of his society. So there were some positive things in his character as a child of God. But his choice to live in the environment of Sodom resulted in him being tormented in his soul by all he saw and heard. Some of you can relate to this. Maybe you work with people who are extremely vile and vulgar. Or maybe they're on your team your sports team, or maybe they're in your class, or, or maybe they're, whatever the circle is, whatever your circle is, maybe you're around them a lot. And you know how it grieves you to hear people take the Lord's name in vain. You know how it grieves you to hear them talk about their sexual exploits of immorality. You know how it grieves you to hear them tell about their drunken parties of debauchery. You know how it bothers you to see people cheating or lying, or stealing, 
or being unfaithful to a spouse or doing other things that are detestable in the eyes of God. It's not an overstatement to say that it torments you. It's oppressing to you. You feel grieved. You feel violated. You feel soiled. That's the way Lot felt all the time. But he put himself in that situation. Some of you are in situations like that, and you would prefer not to be, but you really don't have any choice. Lot did have a choice. He made poor choices, but still, here's Peter's point, still, because he belonged to the Lord, the Lord graciously delivered him from the obliterating judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Isn't that a marvelous illustration of God's grace? I mean, think about that. God could have said something like this, Lot, even though you belong to me, because you have made such poor choices, I'm going to destroy you with the ungodly. It's, it's the consequence of your choices. I'm going to destroy you along with everyone else. But God didn't do that. Yes, there were consequences in Lot's life because of his wrong choices. And we don't want to minimize those. We certainly don't want to repeat those. We should never take them lightly. But when it came time for God to judge the wicked, he delivered Lot. And Peter wants us to understand this is a principle. He wants us to understand this is a pattern. This is how God works. Peter doesn't give these historical examples simply to review history. He wants us to understand that this is how God works. God judges the ungodly and he delivers his children from judgment. That's what Peter states in the next verse. Notice the conclusion he draws. He says, then, in light of this long conditional sentence, if, 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 then God or the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. This is the principle that Peter draws from his previous examples. The Lord knows how to rescue His people from judgment, and the Lord knows how to keep or hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. Peter uses the word temptation or trial in this verse as a synonym for judgment. This Greek word can mean an attack with an intent to destroy. And that's why Peter uses the term here as a synonym for judgment. The word often means, depending on context, it often means trial or test or temptation. But it can be used to describe judgment as it is here in this verse. The Lord knows how to rescue His people from judgment. And the Lord knows how to keep or hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment, so that they don't escape, so they don't get away with it. So the point is this. Judgment is coming someday, and none of the ungodly will escape. That's what Peter wants us to understand. Only God's people will be delivered from judgment. That is why Jesus said in John 5.24, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in Him who has sent me, has eternal life, and shall not come into judgment, but has already passed from death into life. 
Beloved, we will never face the judgment of God. If we are in Christ, if we belong to Christ, if we have Christ, we will never face the judgment of God. It is true that we will stand at the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat of Christ to have our lives evaluated for reward. But that is not a condemning judgment. That is not a damning judgment against sin. We will never, ever face that kind of judgment. Jesus took that judgment for us on the cross. He faced the wrath of God and was condemned for our sin so we could be delivered just as Peter talks about here. Peter says the Lord knows how to do it. He knows how to deliver the godly and he knows how to hold or or keep the ungodly, the unrighteous to make sure they don't escape. None of the ungodly will escape judgment. All of the unsaved of all of the ages will be judged and condemned by the righteous God of the universe. That event is described for us in Revelation chapter 20. And I want us to end our time together there by looking at it. So turn over with me to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 20. And this event that John describes here is surely what was in Peter's mind as he wrote his words in 2 Peter chapter 2, that the Lord knows how to make sure the ungodly do not escape judgment. Revelation chapter 20. The final five verses of this chapter describe the most horrifying scene imaginable. No human experience can even come close to comparing with the horror of this event. This is when the unsaved of all the ages, all the unsaved of all the ages, will be sent to the eternal lake of fire. There is no way, beloved, we can fathom what it will be like for the people who will stand at this throne of judgment. No way. Notice how John describes it ever so briefly. He says in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. You see, they're trying to get away. That's why Peter says the Lord knows how to keep the ungodly. He knows how to make sure they won't get away. They want to get away. The last phrase says there was no, there was found no place for them. The ungodly will not escape judgment. John saw a great white throne. It may be that this throne is great because of its size, but it is certainly great because of its significance. This judgment will condemn the unsaved of all the ages to the eternal lake of fire. Verse 12 says, And I saw the dead small and great, standing before God. Now, if they're standing before God and they're dead, then they had to be raised. This is exactly what Jesus taught in John 5. Everyone will be raised someday, even the ungodly. They will be raised. That's what John sees. They were dead. They've been raised from the dead. They're standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things 
which were written in the books. Jesus made it clear in John 5 that every human being will someday be raised from the dead, not just believers. So this, what we just read there, this is the resurrection of condemnation. All the lost of all the ages will be there, John says, small and great. doesn't matter what, what echelon in society they were in, upper echelon, poor, low class, middle class, upper class, doesn't matter. All the lost of all the ages will be there. And they will be judged according to their works by the things written in the books. The clear implication is that their names are not in the book of life. And that's why they will be judged according to their works by the things written in the books. And beloved, I'll tell you something. Some people at this judgment are going to be shocked that, they're not, that their names are not written in the book of life. Some people are going to be stunned. Jesus said this in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, 21 to 23, he said that on that day, many will say unto him, Lord, Lord, look at what, what I've done. Look at all of this stuff. Look at, look at my religion. Look at all of this. And he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. They will be under the false illusion that their works are good enough to grant them entrance into heaven. Their character is good enough. Their religion is good enough. So Christ will prove the contrary by judging them according to their works. Every thought, every word, every deed will be set forth to demonstrate that the sentence in the lake of fire cannot be proven to be uncalled for or excessive. It is just. Verse 13 says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it, And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. No unsaved person will escape this resurrection. No unsaved person will escape this judgment. And everyone who stands here at the great white throne will be cast into the lake of fire. Understand that. This is not a judgment to determine who goes to heaven. No one at the great white throne will go to heaven. The reason they are judged according to their works is because their works will prove that they were never born of God. God has kept the record of all the deeds, of all the unsaved, of all the ages, and His judgment will be precise, exact, and just. Verse 14 says, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The statement is simple in its expression. There is no unnecessary elaboration. There is no exaggeration. But the meaning of this one verse is utterly profound and abysmal. People will spend eternity in the lake of fire. It's impossible to comprehend. It's impossible. No other verse in the Bible is more horrifying than this brief verse. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Oh, how I hope and pray you won't be there. I plead with you. I beg you. I urge you. 
I implore you to flee from the wrath to come. Don't believe the lie that says there's no such thing as hell. Don't believe the lie that says it will only last for a little while and then God's going to let everyone into heaven. Don't believe the lie that says it will only last for a little while and then people will be annihilated. Don't believe the lie that says your works will be good enough. Don't believe the lie that says as long as you're sincere, you'll be fine. Don't believe the lie that says all religions lead to heaven. Be willing to admit your guilt and your sinfulness now and ask for forgiveness on the basis of the shed blood of Christ instead of standing at this judgment and hearing the sentence declared once and for all throughout eternity, guilty. Depart from me. Oh, how I hope and pray you won't be there. Let's bow together as we close. And as you bow your head, close your eyes in just a few minutes of thoughtful reflection. And certainly this topic, the topic of this morning's text, is one that deserves thoughtful reflection. Think about what God's Word clearly teaches. That God's judgment is certain. God's judgment is sure. And God's judgment is unavoidable to all the ungodly, or for all the unrighteous. The only way to avoid God's judgment is to find refuge in Jesus Christ. God has provided refuge, just like He provided refuge for Noah and his family, and it could have served as refuge for anyone else who would have listened and repented in the ark. They could have found refuge. They chose not to. God chose a way of escape for Lot, and his family, and others, if they were willing to listen, to repent, to choose properly, could have escaped judgment. And so it is for the future. God's judgment is certain, but he has provided a refuge, an escape that is in his son, Jesus Christ. It's the only place. It's not in church. It's not in religion. It's not in deeds. not in good works, it's in Jesus Christ. So if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you've not surrendered your life to Him, you will certainly, surely face the judgment of God. But there is refuge. I urge you to turn, flee to the refuge of Jesus Christ. This very moment where you are seated, surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Ask Jesus Christ into your life to forgive your sin, to change you, to make you the man or the woman He wants you to be. Tell Him that you want to belong to Him and want to know Him and want to live for Him. He is the only escape, the only refuge from God's certain judgment. Father, when this time comes, no one will really be able to say that they were not warned or that they didn't have a chance. Your word tells us that you have 
you have plastered your message in creation. And anyone who's willing to look at that message in creation and acknowledge it, you will certainly bring the truth of the gospel to such a person. No one will be able to blame you for their lost, condemned eternity in the lake of fire. And certainly no one who's gathered here this morning because all have heard very clearly from your word what you have to say about judgment, that it is sure and certain and coming, and that you have provided a refuge and escape in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray for any who do not know him, who have not yielded to him, that today they would make things right. Today they would surrender to Jesus Christ. Today they would turn to him in humility and simple childlike faith and come to know him as their own Lord and Savior. And Father, for those of us who do know him and have found that refuge, oh, what an indescribable blessing to know that we will be shielded from the judgment, the horrific judgment that is coming on the ungodly someday. Thank you, Father, that this is the way you work, as Peter has taught us. This is the way you work. You know how to deliver the godly, and you know how to keep the ungodly, preserve them to make sure they face judgment. Thank you for working in our hearts to draw us to your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.